I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I'm joined by Chunka Moy. Chunka is a futurist, innovation advisor, and keynote speaker. He is the managing director of the Devil's Advocate Group, a consulting group that helps organizations stress test their innovation strategies. He's also the author of four books on innovation, a regular contributor to Forbes, and he's done a whole bunch of other impressive things. Chunka, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So, Chunka, I have to I have to start out by saying, as I was reading through your bio earlier, the piece that got me most excited was, and now lives near the Green Mountains of Vermont, which was where I was born. Oh, wow. That's great. So, Chunka, your simplified about me is I focus on innovations aimed at making the world a much better place. I'd love to hear about some of the exciting projects that you're working on relative to those innovations. Yes, yes. Well, first, thanks for starting there. You know, I've been focused on innovation at the intersection of technology and strategy for my entire business career. And much of that time, I've thought about that work from a lens of business innovation. And that implies success metrics like new products and services and competitive advantage, market share, ultimately market value. Don't get me wrong. Those are good scores to keep. But as I think about innovation today and I absorb the disruptive power of technologies that we're building, especially over the last 10 years, I've tried to pivot to a bigger question in my work, which is, you know, what is the social good or bad of these innovations that, that we're working on? And does it make the world a better place? How much better, how much worse? And, you know, incrementally better is good. And, and that adds up over time. But what I've choose to focus on is business innovations that also aim to make the world a much better place from the world standpoint, not just from the market value standpoint. So in terms of exciting projects, I think there are two that are worth mentioning. And I tend to write a lot about them at Forbes and other places. One is around the whole transportation ecosystem and in particular how autonomous vehicles can drive dramatic improvements in safety and access and cost and resource utilization. And the other big area that I work in is in healthcare, and in particular how digital technologies can uh, address what I think of as a growing disaster in chronic disease, not only through better care, but also in chronic disease prevention. So that's a mouthful, but those, those are two things I'm really excited about these days. Yeah, I, I love the angle of looking at the, the social good or bad of those innovations. Would you say that at, at a high level, the innovations that you're seeing in the market drive toward the social good, or is it a mixed bag and, and more often we need to be cautious about what's coming out of those innovations? Oh, I think it's definitely a mixed bag. I think that as we've seen, you know, technology is an amplifier of both good and bad. It's an amplifier both of connections, but it can also be an amplifier for partisan tendencies and tribalism and even prejudices. So I think that we as as business people, as technology people, really have to ask ourselves tough questions about what we're doing and what the long-term impacts will be. We have to ask ourselves whether or not you know, we're going to be good ancestors, not just good business people. So I saw in a recent headline a woman being upset that her father's news about his prognosis was delivered by an, a robot. Essentially, it was a, somebody remotely controlling a roving robot in a, in a healthcare facility. I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are relative to the, the social good that you're seeing in, in the technology coming out of the healthcare space in particular. That I, I think there's a lot to be gained there, but, but as you said, you have to be cautious about how you 
implement that technology in, in various industries? Yeah, well, you know, healthcare is a critically important industry. And I do a lot of work at the American Medical Association. And one of the things, one of the things that the CEO there, Jim Adair, observes is that healthcare is a $3 trillion industry with $4 trillion price tag. Now, it's critically important. It delivers really, really high quality care in life and death situations. But at one point, you know, estimates are that we waste about a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars each year on, on things like administrative complexity, poor diagnosis, poor delivery, poor follow-up, all a whole set of things. So we can definitely improve there. And the other aspect about healthcare that that's really troubling is that most of that $4 trillion is spent on acute care. It's spent on what happens after we get really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And not much of it is spent on keeping us healthy. So I'll give you an example of that. About 30 million people in the U.S. have diabetes. If you look at the healthcare costs of people with diabetes versus people who don't have it, it's about twice as much. And much of our healthcare spending is on the consequences of chronic diseases like diabetes. But we spend hardly any money on diabetes prevention. Now, the example you were talking about, technology is is a critical ingredient in helping scale solutions like diabetes prevention because we can't hire enough people to address the 84 million people with at risk for diabetes. So technology, including AI technology, including remote technologies, critically important for scaling in that kind of arena. But we have to make sure we get the interactions right. We have to make sure we get the, the, the human element of it right. And it sounds like you know, the example you're talking about, we certainly got that really wrong. Yeah. Powerful example, though, that you just gave on spending that money up front before you get to the conditions that that require that additional and incremental spend. Absolutely. And this is one of those places where if you have your business hat on, you might actually reach a different conclusion than if you had your society hat on. Mm. Because the $4 trillion that are spending, that's what we're spending, even though, you know, from a societal standpoint, we're saying we're wasting a trillion dollars of that. That's all somebody's revenue. Yeah. That's all feeding somebody's business model. And we don't want to say you don't do acute care, but you know, if you're a big hospital system and you say, well, I can spend money on my cardiac department, or I can build a big cancer treatment facility for $250 million. And I know my ROI, or I can spend $25 million on diabetes prevention of where I don't know the ROI, or at least it's a lot worse, where am I going to put my money? I'm going to put it in the big investment where the ROI is needed because that's the right thing to do from a business standpoint, but it's not the right thing to do from a society standpoint. So we have to figure out those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. So I actually first saw you present when we were both guest speakers at a Broadridge event, maybe seven or eight years ago. And, And I walked away with a copy of your book, Billion Dollar Lessons, what you can learn from the most excusable business failures of the last 25 years. I love the book. It now sits on the bookshelf behind my desk. Looking back, is there one lesson from that book that stands out as particularly important given the business landscape today? Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, that's the book where we analyzed about 2,500 of the biggest business failures across public companies over 25 years. And the, the idea was to identify the lessons that might help today's executives avoid making the similar mistakes. Because as the old saying goes, everybody makes mistakes. You just want to make new mistakes, not, not repeat old ones. Right. 
And, you know, there are many lessons that we came up with depending on the kind of industry you were in and the kind of strategy you were trying to, to run with. But I'll tell you, rather than a lesson, I'll tell you the biggest surprise from all that research. And the biggest surprise was that the conventional wisdom is that business success is, in the end, all about execution. You know, people say that all the time. Can, can only spend so much time planning, but then it's all about execution. But our analysis of all those failures showed that almost half of them involve fundamental mistakes in planning, errors that probably could not have been saved by great execution. Mm-hmm. And these were mistakes that were identified in hindsight, but they were faulty assumptions or big miscalculations made in spite of what was known at the time. And for whatever reason, sometimes ego, sometimes the social dynamics of the strategy process, sometimes short time horizons, those errors were made. So I'll give you one particular error that might be of interest, particular interest to, to your listeners, which was when companies tend to overestimate the loyalties of their customers. We found a number of examples of vertical integrations, for example, that assumed a lot of synergies across the different businesses because of the combination of the customer sets. So like when an airline bought a hotel chain and a car rental company thinking that they could offer a bundle service to their collective customers, then it would go better. Customers didn't care. Right. We'll pick, you know, we'll, we'll buy an airline ticket. We'll pick the hotel and the car company that we care about. So all that, all that money paid in order to combine those companies was lost because they, they expected synergies that weren't there. Or in, in, it also happens when you have consolidations within an industry that don't account for customer defections because the customers, you know, don't really care that you can operate more efficiently together. They care about the kind of service they had beforehand. So that customer loyalty and the interaction with customers often falls into the kinds of mistakes that, that those failures experience. Customer loyalty is is definitely a hot topic, and, and I, I agree that companies overstate even loyalty to existing product and existing experience. So not to mention if you leapfrog that and, and make what you think is a logical jump in what your customer base might want. Yeah, oftentimes what's logical in the, in the heads of the planners just make no sense when you look at it from an external perspective. Right. I wonder if an exception to that is loyalty to, to Apple and, and the various products that they continue to roll out. And it, it, it feels like there's sometimes a, you know, a blind loyalty because of the, the quality of product and experience over time. Well, Apple, Apple has certainly done a magnificent job of creating an emotional attachment to its brand. But I think that the, the power there is that they've combined that emotional attachment with an ecosystem that in a thousand different ways, nudges you to stay within it, mm-hmm. both because of the, you know, the power of, of true synergy across their various applications and platforms, but also the barriers to exit. Yeah, definitely. There was a, an announcement a little while ago about Apple Card coming this summer and reimagining that credit card experience. So I'll be very curious to see if consumers make that leap in droves or if it's a softer launch than, than some other Apple products have been in the past. Yeah. You know, there's an old saying that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Right. And I think the place to look at for the evolution in mobile payments and perhaps some examples of what Apple might be able to do and might not be able to do is China, where the penetration rate for mobile payments and the skip past credit cards in general to, to mobile payments has just been astronomical. I mean, if you go to China today, you'll see beggars on the street with QR codes 
hanging around their necks because right. they they expect that nobody has cash. They're gonna you know they're gonna give them up, give them some money. It's gonna be through mobile payments. One of the things I think it's really interesting for executives, innovators to remember is that there are many examples always of what you're thinking about doing. They tend to just not be in the places that you would naturally look. And one of the things that's happening from a digital innovation standpoint, I think, is what's happening in China, just because the market is so big, the wealth is growing so fast, and they're leapfrogging a lot of a lot of what we're doing because they didn't have the same infrastructure that we had going into it. So we have an install base. They don't. And there are a lot of lessons to be learned in China. Yeah, great advice. So let's go back to 1998. And you co-authored a book, Unleashing the Killer App, Digital Strategies for Market Dominance. The Wall Street Journal once called this book one of the five best books on business and the internet. Now, not to mention that this was a decade before your average consumer was even using the term app. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you looked back on that now, what recommendations hold true today? And where would you want to go back and, and rewrite a chapter or two? Sure. Well, you know, what we predicted in 1998 was that the Internet and related technologies were going to be horizontal disruptors across all industries. You know, we, we saw that it would challenge industry boundaries and business models across industries that didn't really think of themselves as information technology industries. And I don't think there's any argument about that today, but it was pretty pretty uh, bold and, mm-hmm. and crazy stuff back then. And, you know, remember, this was when around the time that Borders actually outsourced its e-commerce operations to Amazon, right. thinking that the Internet was going to be nothing more than just another distribution channel, another fulfillment channel. And instead, Borders went out, you know, went on a, a binge building more big box stores so that they sell music CDs and movie DVDs. And we, we all know how that game played out. So instead of rewriting a chapter, and as I, I know you know, we, I went back and wrote the sequel, which was to ask the question of how large companies could use those same tools that were driving the, the first generation of killer apps on the internet for startups, but also to take those tools and integrate it with the kinds of expertise and scale and relationships that large companies have to out-innovate the startups that were nipping at their heels. I wonder, how are large companies doing without innovating startups these days? In a lot of ways, I think large companies are doing great. I mean, fast forward from 1998 to 2019, and if you think about some of the most formidable innovative companies in the world right now, many of those are really large companies. They're way past their startup stages. I talked to bit about my work in autonomous vehicles, General Motors. And General Motors is one of the leading companies helping to transform their industry in building driverless cars and building electric vehicles and trying to understand how that moves to different models of transportation where people may not actually buy cars. They actually might, might just buy mobility. If you think about two of the most valuable companies in the world, Apple and Amazon, you know, we tend to forget they've been around for decades. They've launched many generations of products in multiple industries to tremendous success. I hope you don't mind, even your company, Broadridge, yeah. uh, which many might think of as just, you know, one of the largest centers of paper statements and, and mail, right, through the U.S. Post Office. You know, you're, you're driving the pace and thinking about digital communications and how digital communications affects corporate communications. So I think the reason that large companies can't innovate, there are some good reasons. 
oftentimes with no challenges in terms of cultural adoption, but most of those reasons fall within the tagline of getting in their own way. And I think large companies are getting better and better at getting out of their own way and taking advantage of their natural resources. I mean, I still think there's, there's a robust environment for startups, but many large companies are sort of past the denial stage and now, and now trying to think about how these tools that we have really affect them in a fundamental way. Do you think that some of the innovation attributed to these large companies is in part due to innovative startups that they just gobble up before they get too mainstream and then they take those views and incorporate them into a larger company mentality? Oh, I think that is certainly one strategy for infusing new capabilities into large companies. And that's a good strategy. I don't think it always works. I think that too often, large companies tend to suffocate the startups they buy mm-hmm. rather than really incorporate them. But if you do this, if you do it right, that's a natural way of building capabilities. I think it only works when the large company has a clear view of its strategy and a clear way of taking that startup and doing something with it. So I mentioned General Motors before, and I'll give you an example from their perspective. For years, GM was actually in denial about driverless cars and autonomous vehicles. They had long-term executives there who would say, essentially, not in my lifetime, not in my watch. But a new CEO came in, had a more progressive perspective. One of the things they did was they went out and bought a couple of startups that were early leaders in autonomous vehicle technology, but they were essentially failed startups. They were startups who, who had good ideas, early engineering, but couldn't build a product. And what GM did was they took that expertise they married it with one of their top-notch lead engineers who really understood how to build cars and how to, how to scale manufacturing production. And they put that, those, those assets together. They went from not on the radar to one of the top efforts in that arena. So it's really this combination of great skill and the ability to scale that's necessary for anyone to succeed. And that's where large companies can, can step in and take it all the way from great idea, great invention to industrialization and innovation at scale. Yeah, a great example. And if we carry that theme of innovation into the realm of reimagining communications, I'd, I'd be curious your thoughts on what innovations you see having the largest impact on how businesses communicate with their customers, shareholders, members, and, and other constituents. Yeah, well, I think that if you look at digital transformation right now, the, one of the biggest drivers of innovation is about deep understanding about customers, their attributes, their behavior, the context in which they operate. So if you think about what's driving value in some of the most valuable companies right now, whether it's Amazon or Apple or Google or Facebook or Netflix or you know in healthcare, companies like CVS and Aetna, and companies trying to transform healthcare. It's all around having a virtuous cycle of platforms and products that leverage understanding of customers to the benefit of both customers and sellers. So I think the biggest impact on customer communications is the opportunity to turn the whole concept around, to look at it not from the sender's perspective, the, the communicator's perspective, but the customer's perspective, given the deep, deep understanding of the customer. So, you know, in a lot of ways, bills and statements, they're, they're yesterday's artifacts. You know, they're, they're the output of business 
mostly back office business operations. The real question is, you know, what's a deep understanding of customers? How can you integrate all that data that, that every one of your clients has and turn it in, into actually knowledge about the customers that can drive, that can drive demand, that can drive value to the customers? So, you know, I get an electricity bill every month. It's digital. I hardly ever look at it. But I also have this little device attached to my circuit breakers called Sense that analyzes the electrical signals of all the appliances running in my house and tells me when they go on, when they go off, you know, what's, what's the percentage of the spend? I could take that and figure out how I might manage that better. The utility that sends me my electricity bill has no sense to that. They right. don't have any of that information, but they could. And they, they, could, they could be part of that process of helping me optimize this product that I buy from them on a regular basis. How can they apply deep understanding of their customers to the value, to, you know, to, to the benefit of their customers, and use that to drive their innovation strategy? So you don't spend any time looking at that electricity or utility bill, but you do spend time analyzing the output of cents in, in this example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I would love, I would love for, for those two to be integrated. And that's, that's the whole thing about, you know, from a utility standpoint, you know, one of the things I worry a lot about is, is climate change and our carbon footprint. I have all these slices of that around my house. I would love for someone to be able to say, hey, this is you. This is not just your electricity part of you. This is, you know, this is your electricity. This is your water usage. This is your natural gas usage. This is your garbage, all this stuff. And there should be this digital twin of me, you know, that analyzes all information and presents that back to me and helps me understand myself. And I would imagine that I would be really open to companies, to providers who can help me optimize that from a number of different standpoints. And I think that opportunity happens across all industries. Yeah, great feedback. So at the beginning of the year on Forbes, you had written, as you consider your big aspirations for the new year, remember the difference between success and failure often boils down to six words. Successful innovators think big, start small, learn fast. Failures often do not. I think it's a great way to wrap our discussion today. Can you expand on that Forbes article for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. And I think it applies to this conversation we just had. If you think about your innovation opportunities, you have to start from first principles. You have to have the willingness to start from a clean sheet of paper and say, okay, what are all the things that might be possible for me to do? It's not that I'm suggesting you do them all, but you have to understand what the whole consideration set is, all the way from the biggest opportunities you have to the biggest dangers that you have. And only if you have that large, large perspective can you decide what are the fruitful things to pursue. And the way you pursue them is to not fall in love with any one of them. You pursue them in a, in a rigorous scientific way. You start small. You know, you take those big opportunities, you break them down to the crucial questions that you have, and you experiment, you test. And you're willing to throw away things that don't work or ask what the next stage of questions are to the things that do. So you think big, you start small. And then the really key is that you learn fast. You try to optimize, have as many cycles of learning as possible, make each one small to the point where you can actually make the big investment decisions. Now, what happens instead on the failure side is that companies tend to limit themselves early. They think small 
I say that, you know, oftentimes what happens with big companies is they swing from complacency to panic. So they think small and then something happens, usually at a competitor or an external environment. And they say, oh, my goodness, we missed it. We better get back in the game. And they go from thinking small to betting big. And when they bet big, it's during crisis and they have no time to learn because they only have one option. They have, you know, to reach for the, for the one thing they can do and it's a Hail Mary path. So it's a contrast between thinking big, starting small and learning fast and having, having a systematic approach to innovation or thinking small, betting big and having no time to learn. Chunka, that was excellent. And, and thank you so much for joining me today. I had fun. Thank you. Great. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. If you like this episode and think someone else would too, please share it, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 